To love someone is to worry. Might be, for instance, a friend or loved one who travels to a dangerous place. And as they go, you think about them. You think about when they get there. For example, Tegucigalpa, Honduras. Once the homicide capital of the world and the site of our church's first ever mission trip in 2013. People signed up to go on this particular missions trip and they considered spouses and friends poured in and they asked the question, is it safe? <laughs> and you understand because to love someone is for them. There's also the case for new parents. New parents who, who finally go out on that first date after their child is born. When you're on that first date, when your baby's at home, not to text your babysitter, and you think about it, is she okay? Is she okay? Is she all right? And you wonder and you worry because you love that child. It could be a first day at school, first day at college, first day at a new job for your child. For us, more recently, our child's, our children's, First time at a summer camp. First time, longest time they've ever been away for us, 12 days and in the middle of the woods. And we thought about them. All of a sudden, we became skilled again in letter writing, thinking, hopefully they'll write us back. We became very diligent every night, getting on the, the camp's website to their picture gallery, because they took pictures of kids every day, scouring every picture. I mean, hundreds of pictures per night on our vacation, right, looking for our children. Where are they? For five days, we didn't see our oldest son, Mason. We wondered, is he okay? Is he just not being around other people? Is he hiding from the camera? Maybe he ran away from the woods. I don't know. What's going on here? We figured they would tell us if that happened. But to love someone is to worry about them, right? Arguably the most famous story in the Bible is one of love and worry. A father waits for his son to return. He waits probably outside on his front stoop, thinking about his son, looking for his son, Wondering, what am I going to say should my son return again? It's a son who formerly cared about his father's approval, his father's smile. Now he seeks approval and pleasure elsewhere. And because of that, the father now worries. Specifically, he worries about who or what his son is worshiping. And therein lies the good kind of worry. There is nothing more loving than to worry about who someone worships. To worry about who or what someone worships. If someone worships something, and that's the most important thing for us to worry about, it'd be good for me to explain why that's so important. And the reason it's so important to worry about why someone worships is that every person here, every person you know, every person you'll ever meet, especially every person you love, is a worshiper. Everyone is a worshiper. That doesn't mean that every person you love goes regularly to a sanctuary, to a temple, to a mosque, or to a shrine. Rather, every person we love looks outside of themselves to get their sense of worth, their sense of satisfaction. They look outward for that. Whatever, whoever that may be, we give ourselves over to them or to that. We give our thoughts to those things. We give our affection to those things. We give our time. We, give our, we, we build our schedules around what we feel like gives us a sense of worth and satisfaction. So the New Testament talks about this in terms of worship. It talks about this in terms of you can worship the real God, but many have exchanged, it says in Romans one twenty three, have exchanged 
the real God for functional gods, lowercase g gods. So we might say, I will be satisfied or have worth if I am loved and respected by this person, by Matt, by Wes, by Jen, whoever that is. And, and that because of that, you might worship then at the altar of a person. Some people say, I, I, I will finally find worth and be satisfied if I have enough money. If I have enough, I put that in quotes because it's never enough. Because you worship security. Or I'll be satisfied, have worth if I find success in my career. You worship your work. I'll be satisfied and have worth if my children do well and my parents are proud. You worship your family. I'll be satisfied to have worth if people need me. You worship the altar of dependence. Or I will find satisfaction, have worth if I can actually live out some moral or religious code. You can actually worship religion or morality. You know that without actually worshiping the real God. Worship of the real God is when we can say that we are satisfied being loved and accepted by Jesus Christ. It's when we see people we love drift away from Jesus' love and acceptance that we should start to get concerned. We no longer see them embrace God, embrace his people, and maybe we start to hear about or we kind of sniff out that there might be other functional gods like the kind I just talked about a minute ago in their lives that we should start to be worried about them. And that's a good kind of worry. And that's what today is all about. It's all about what we do with our worry. What do we do with our worry for fellow worshipers? There's no one around here for whom you worry. That's because you just haven't got to know enough people yet. I recognize there might be some of us there. I want to commend to you a community group. All right, we mentioned they're launching very soon. I guarantee you, you're going to find someone to worry about in a community group. <laughs> there will be someone there to worry about. It might be me. But our Bible reading today is about worrying for people in, in a good sense. And that Bible reading comes from the book of Joshua, chapter 22. So turn there with me, if you would. The book, book of Joshua, it's in the Old Testament towards the beginning of the Bible. And it's going to be on page 169 if you want to use one of the Bibles we've provided. As we've been talking about, one of the great things about reading Joshua is how directly we can apply lessons from it to our own lives because that period of redemption history it very much resembles life with Jesus today. Very much resembles that. It's because God, back then, had just used death to deliver his people from slavery, and he used death to deliver them into a promised land so they might have peace from, from war. Today, God has used the death of Jesus to deliver those who've trusted him from slavery to sin. Slavery from, from only doing our own thing and into this promised inheritance of being forever in God's family. So we see these, these parallels between Joshua and life with Jesus today. And yet, sometimes members of God's family, sometimes members of this very family, they wander. They wander from their inheritance, from everything that's good that's been given to them. And because they wander, we worry, and rightly so, because they're part of our family. And that's what we see amongst God's family here at the end of Joshua. Let me give you a little context here. Most members of God's family back in Joshua's day, they, they had land. They had this promised land, and most of them lived west of what was known as the Jordan River or the Jordan River Valley. 
It was massive, this river valley. It was a natural division of land, as we might think of. Like we think about mountains, or we think about oceans. We think about massive river valleys. This was one of those kind of natural divisions. And most of God's family live to the west of it, okay, as you see up here on the screen. But a small percentage of them, a small percentage of them lived east of the Jordan River Valley. They had land there. Two and a half tribes out of 12, to be exact, lived east of the Jordan River Valley. So these tribes, these two and a half tribes, they're going to live east. They're hanging out west still because they just helped God's people win wars. They're hanging out. And just before they head to their, their permanent homes to the east, Joshua gets them together and he preaches one final sermon to them. And in this sermon, he first of all encourages the people. He thanks them. He praises them. Thanks for all your help in winning these battles. You did a great job. Well done. And then he says, now be careful to keep loving God and follow his commandments. And after the sermon is done, he sends them home from church, as it were. Right? And suddenly, Sunday, as it were, turns in, into Monday. And then something starts to happen. Th- their worship starts to change, starts to look different. And all of a sudden, the, the, the majority of God's people hear about it. The majority of God's family hears about it. They sniff it out. They get worried. They're worried about their brothers, their sisters. What's going on? Are you still worshiping the true God? So as we start to read here in Joshua, I want us to observe what the worried do with their worry, okay? Let's start here in verse 10. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it and said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they built this altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Let me stop right here real quick after verse 12 to give you a little explanatory note. Why is this such a big deal? The smaller part of God's family, they built this altar. Why is that worthy of being so worried, even to the point where they come out and be like, we got to do about this? It's because God commands that his people not make other altars. He talks about this in Deuteronomy. God does talks about this in Deuteronomy 12, if you want to look it up later. Why would he care if people have more than one altar to worship him? Well, because here's what's usually happened. People would build other altars in random places, maybe by the shoreline, maybe in the mountains and whatever usually around where other people worship different gods. And at first, they would worship the true God. But slowly and steadily, as they watched the people around them, they would they'd adopt practices of the pagans, of the people who worship different gods. And so they started doing those things and, and worshiping those gods along with the true God of Israel. And so what God said is, hey, we need to make this one God, one family, one faith, one altar. So you're not tempted to start bringing in worship of other gods and, and giving your heart and your affection and your sense of satisfaction, sense of worth to these other gods. So one altar. Make sense? Okay. So they're worried. They see another altar. They're like, what is going on here? Let's keep reading here in verse 13. Then the people of Israel sent people of Reuben, the people of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, again, the eastern tribes, 
in the land of Gilead, they sent Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, in the land of Gilead. And they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord. Haven't we had enough sin at Peor in which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, in other words, the land east of the Jordan, If it's unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things and wrath fell upon the whole congregation of Israel and he did not perish alone for his iniquity. So we have here a number of options. God's people are worried. They're worried. And they can do a number of things with that worry. And I think we can learn here valuable lessons for what we can do with our worry. I want to mention two helpful responses to rightly worrying for other people, people who've wandered, other worshipers. Number one, start the conversation. Start it, just start the conversation. Have it with other people, people you're worried about. The majority of God's family here. We see the majority of Israel, they start to sniff out something's not right. And they literally, we see in verse 11, heard it said that something's not right. They heard it said. Just like we sometimes hear rumors today. We hear what's going on in someone's life, and we worry for them, and rightly so. And when we hear something might be off in a person's life, Christians usually do one of two things. They, They let their worry develop into condemnation. First of all, they often... He or she no longer attends our church, our community group. They've stopped serving. They've kind of wandered. They must be hardened. They must be lost. Kind of forget them. I just won't even think about them anymore. And that's one way Christians sometimes deal with people who have wandered. Another way is to let their worry develop into indifference. At first, that starts out as kind of a hands-off approach. Like, I'm going to assume a best about that person, which we should do. But then we never check in with them. We never follow up with them. We never kind of see how they're doing. And that all of a sudden, we just don't think about them anymore. We become indifferent to them, right? The Israelites could have gone either one of these ways. They could have just stayed where they were, west of the Jordan. Been like, well, you know what? Those people went that way. Now they're following a different God, whatever. But our passage shows that there's a middle way. You can let your worry develop into a conversation. And that's what God's people do, right? They almost don't. We see that. God's family... Let's their concern almost develop into condemnation. They gathered to make war. They're like, uh-uh. Thankfully, cooler heads prevail. So let, let, let's talk about this together. We can do this also. There's an amazing way that God can use us, guys, all of us here. Jesus' brother James explains this in the New Testament, James chapter 5, verse 19 through 20. My brothers, if any one of you, anyone, sorry, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. 
That person who's dispatched to, say, to, to go after a wandering sinner can actually save them. You know, as James says, brothers, that's because family members wander. You might be surprised that you see brothers and sinners in the same sentence, but that's because all of us wander at some time. And we need one another, someone to be dispatched, to come to us and say, hey, I'm worried about you, I'm concerned about you. And what a blessing it is then to be used by God in that way. How then can we, can we be used by God to bring back a sinner? How do, we, how do we do this? Well, first of all, we do so gently. Paul says in Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Go after the person. Try to get them back to, to find their satisfaction, their worth in Jesus Christ. But do it gently. That's the attitude we're supposed to have. Also, we ask questions and we listen. We ask questions and we listen. Now, now we notice in our passage, God's people ask questions, don't they? They confront these smaller tribes. They're like, hey, what's going on? But they do so in a way that's kind of accusatory. They ask accusatory questions like, what have you done? Can you, can you feel that in verse 16? Or verse 17, don't, don't you remember that one time we all got distracted, all of our people, they started worshiping at a different altar and finding satisfaction in different gods? That's what happened at Peor. You can look it up at Numbers later. Or verse 20, don't you remember that time when Achan started worshiping at the altar of prosperity? God said one thing, and he went off and said, no, I want riches for myself. I want material goods for myself. And that's the right idea, to come to them with questions kind of search out their hearts. But recall, they're doing this in a time in history when God intervened with direct judgment into into their lives, oftentimes causing harm to people, death even. Under the reign of Jesus, there will be a deserved and final judgment, but at the end, in the meantime, God is patient with us. He is relentlessly patient with us. And so our questions and our attitudes should be reflected in the way we have a conversation with someone else with a sense of patience, with a sense of gentleness in the way we ask questions. First of all, our questions should be aimed towards understanding the other person. And also, our questions should be aimed at helping the person see themselves. It should be aimed at understanding because we might misunderstand the person. We might not know everything that's going on in their lives. We also want to ask questions that help a friend, help someone we love see themselves rightly. Do you ever notice when people share their struggles, they share their story, they are often not in it. I find this in myself. Sometimes I find myself speaking and I'm sharing my story. Where am I in that story? I get caught up focusing on the challenges of circumstances. Or I can, I can tell the story of what's going on in my life by focusing on the behavior or motives of others. But where am I in that story? When we talk with other people who have wandered, they often don't want to talk about themselves. Just like I don't want to talk about myself when I've wandered. Maybe you can relate to that. So ask questions that help people see, hey, where are you in this? I know you're going through something hard. You're going through something difficult. Okay. When you made that decision, what was your thinking? What was your feeling behind that? Or when, you know, you sympathize with their hardship, don't just talk about the sympathy. Also ask, how did you respond to that hardship? That's how you get to a person's heart. And when you get to their heart, you get to their worship. So, so ask questions that help people just to see where are you in your story? How are you responding in it? Okay? So first of all, have the conversation. A second thing we can learn from this story this morning 
demonstrate a willingness to sacrifice. If you go to someone and have a conversation, express a willingness to sacrifice. Look at verse 19, where God's people to the west say, hey, look, if this is not working out for you, east of the Jordan River, all the way over here, isolated by yourselves, come and possession, take a possession among us. It says in verse 19, if it's too hard worshiping God in your current situation, come live with us. Bring your herds. Bring your people. Probably 200 to 400,000 people. They're saying, you know, we can get other villages. We can give you some of our cities. Take from what we have. Only please come back to worship the true God with us. That's the kind of willingness to give of ourselves that we need to bring when we're pursuing someone who has wandered, who we love. Remember the plight of God's people for Joshua. Homelessness, joblessness. And what are they offering? Their land, their homes, their sense of livelihood. We will even give what's most precious to us, to you if you need it. When you start a conversation with a family member for whom you're worried, hold nothing back from helping them. Your time may be precious. Offer them even still a ride for church. That second car you had, that second vehicle, could be of great assistance to them. Even though it's so valuable to you, I get it. A place to stay, a regular spot at your dinner table, or a regular spot in your schedule just to hang out, talk, and be a friend. And you know what? If they refuse everything, which people who you pursue might do, they might be, hey, nothing's wrong. I don't want to talk. You can always sacrifice by getting on your knees and lifting them up in prayer every single day and sacrifice in that way. Now, how do we do that? How how is is sacrifice realistically possible when everything I mentioned is so valuable? Only through Jesus. There's no way to go into a conversation willing to give completely of yourself unless we know and we trust Jesus. There's no way. And Jesus never asks of us what he hasn't already given us. He never asks of us what he hasn't already given us. So 1 John 4.19 says that, We can love someone, we can give to someone, we can love someone because he's first loved us. We can give as he's been so generous with us through his very self. We can take up our own cross and die to self because Jesus literally took up a cross and died to himself. So as we look to Jesus and rely on Jesus, we can actually find the strength and the resources to give to others and offer that as we talk to them. There is someone not present with us today for whom you worried. I encourage you to start a conversation with a heart willing to give. Now, worry is one side of this coin and one side of the story this morning, but there is another side, and that is the worshiper. We've looked at the worried, but now we're going to look at the worshiper. And this is relevant to us as well because think about it. Have you ever been approached by a Christian and they made a comment or started a conversation in which you felt attacked? or you felt beat up, or you felt misunderstood. Has that ever happened to you in the church, among people who call themselves Christians? Well, let's keep reading, because we see that happen this morning. There's the worshiper as well here. Look at verse 21. We'll read through verse 29. Then the people of Reuben, that's everyone in the east of Jordan, the people of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, having been confronted, having had the conversation started, the mighty one... God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows, and let Israel itself know, if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. 
If we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did this from fear that over time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan, that that big river valley, a boundary between us and you. You people of, of Reuben, the people of Gad, you have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, for sacrifice, but be witness between us and you, between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, peace offerings, so your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought, if this should be said to us or our descendants in time, we'll say, hey, Sorry, that's a little bit of a... We should say, Behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord, turning away this day from following him by building an altar for the burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice, other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands between before us in his tabernacle. So before we turn to the worshiper, now we can see why it's so important and having that conversation to first listen to people, to gain an understanding, what's going on with this person for whom I'm so worried? Because it might just be a misunderstanding. And that's what happens here in our text. They think, oh my gosh, they've given their hearts to another God. They've built another altar. I'm worried for them. I care about them. This is life and death. And then they find out, wait a minute, it's just a misunderstanding. They actually built this for another reason. So that one day... Their kids might not say, oh, yeah, we forgot about you. Uh, You don't worship the true God anymore because you're all the way across the Jordan Valley. They had this real worry, and and it could have all been solved by just asking in the first place, hey, tell us what's going on. Now, for those of you who feel like someone has a conversation with you and you feel sometimes attacked or you feel misunderstood, and someone comes to you and has this kind of conversation like, I'm worried about you, how should you respond? Because at some point, that's going to be all of us here. Number one, first of all, be grateful, I think. Be grateful that someone has expressed their worry. People are never going to do this perfectly. People are going to come to you, and they're going to say the wrong thing. They're going to stumble over their words. They may, they may not look you in the eye because they, they feel like, ah, I know this is hard to hear. They may misunderstand or misrepresent you even in what they express. But at least they've come to you and expressed their worry. They've expressed their concern. We should be grateful for that. True friends. Number two, maintain a clear conscience. Maintain a clear conscience. This this means worshiping Jesus, yes, but it doesn't mean doing so perfectly. You're going to sin in your life. You're going to say no to God every day and do your own thing. Most important daily response that we can make after rebelling against God is going to Jesus and just saying, I'm sorry. Quickly doing it as quickly as possible. That's how you maintain a clear conscience. And And if your sin involves someone else, go to them. Like Jesus says in Matthew 5, right away and says, I'm, say, I'm sorry. Then when you are approached, you don't need to be defensive because you've been keeping in contact with God. You've, you've been keeping a short list of how you've offended to him. And God forgives you of that, he says in his word, immediately. So you can listen to what someone says, even if it feels like an attack, without being a defensive, without kind of freaking out. Uh, like, 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 the, like the Eastern tribes, you can respond, look, God knows. The Lord, our God, knows. And we have no problem letting you know, too. Here's what's going on. They might say, hey, when you have this conversation, you don't see someone for a while. Hey, we're, we're, we're just worshiping in a different church now. 
or, or we're going through a hard season or because of our health or because of we have newborns or because of just a struggling spouse, I can't get to community group right now. And I want to let you know. When we maintain a clear conscience, we're even open to being wrong because it feels so right to be on good terms with God. One more thing you can do. If someone comes to you in conversations and says, hey, I'm worried about you. I'm worried how you're doing spiritually. One thing we can learn is to be consistent in our worship. That is something that the tribes east of the Jordan didn't do. Consider it in their worship. Look at verse 28 says, they created a copy of the altar of the Lord. They should have known people are going to raise eyebrows. They created something that looks like a worship alternative. So how that relates to us, you, you might have good reason post pictures from multiple Sunday morning beach trips, all right? 10 a.m., all right, we get it. You weren't here, right? Uh, you, you might have, have reason for, you're regularly checking in for, from the wharf, you know, for 70s and 80s themed dance parties. I get that. You may have good reasons for that. You may have pure purposes for being a regular at a local pub, all of those things. You may have good reasons for, for not showing up on Sundays for a season, taking a break from community group, or just stopping your service, whether it be in the hospitality team or the tech team or whatever. You may have good reasons, but give us warriors a heads up. Those of us who are worried for you, we're family. Most of us aren't concerned about numbers or how things look. We're just concerned about you, how you're doing, and your relationship with God. Now, people object to this. People just have a natural objection to this. Why? Because we think, man, that's a private matter. Religion's a private That's between me and God. I don't want to say, I don't need to say anything to anyone. I've felt that before. But, but we see in places like 1 Corinthians 8, Romans 14, the New Testament says, be considerate about how you use your freedom. Because people might misunderstand. One person's conscience won't be bothered by having a, a glass of, of wine or a beer. Another, with regard to an R-rated movie or show. Another, with how they can handle being wealthy and a good steward. Another can hang out primarily with non-Christians without being tainted or ceasing to worship the true God. This can happen, and that's okay. But does anyone know? Because that's the appearance you're giving. And and, and Christians, young Christians and non-Christians, are looking to your example, and sometimes they can be confused. Like, hey, what's going on? Are you still loving and worshiping Jesus? It's far better to be open with some people. Tell them, hey, here's what's going on. I still love Jesus. This might look strange. Let me explain myself. And that can help. And sometimes you may just want to stop doing it because it causes people to stumble. Let's get back here to the end of our story. Because the worried Western tribes started that conversation. The Eastern tribes, we see they maintained a clear conscience. They could respond without being defensive. And because of that, it's a win for everyone. The conversation was had. They responded without being defensive because they had a clear conscience. And because of that, we see it's a win-win for everyone. Read verses 30 and 31 with me. When the Phineas, the priest, and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with them, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gat and the people of Manasseh spoke. In other words, they heard, they, they heard this response. Here I am. I'm bringing this concern to you. You've responded by saying, I have a clear conscience before God. And let me explain to you what was going on. Now the people who are worried respond back. And they think, oh my goodness, it, is, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the people of Reuben, to the people of Gad, to the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst, because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Two wonderful things are happening here in this passage. One, we see the reconciliation. People coming back together, 
is the greatest evidence of God's presence among his family. Verse 31, right? Today, we know that the Lord is in our midst. He is here. We have seen it because we've had the conversation with you. You've responded so humbly and with a clear conscience. And God is here. God is in this. Who else can bring two sinners together but God? Right? Two parties prone to wanting to be right. Two parties prone to being stuttered. Two parties with clouded judgment because what sin has done in our lives. Who can do that but the Lord? And he's done it here. Because people had the conversation. Warriors had the conversation. And worshipers had a clear conscience and weren't defensive and said, here's what's going on in my life. Notice also having the conversation reconciling always allows opportunity to encourage the other person. In this case, the priest Phineas, he praises the eastern tribes and says, you have delivered the people. Amazing how, how great that would be for the person who, who may have felt attacked before, who may have felt initially defensive now they're being praised by the same person. They're saying, hey, you have done it. You have helped us. You've been used by God to save us. If you find yourself worried for a fellow worshiper, one thing you can do is just start a conversation. Go outside of your comfort zone. Make the call. Send the WhatsApp. Make the text. Get together. Have the conversation. If you recognize that your worship of Jesus might, might look a little different, which may cause misunderstanding, I want to encourage you to maintain a clear conscience with God and talk to a few people about it so we don't end up confusing people, people that we influence. When we do these things as a family, we can turn out far happier endings than if we never had the conversation at all. Let's pray together. Jesus, you tell us the two greatest commandments are to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we recognize God to love you, to care about your fame, your honor, your glory, and to love our neighbor means sometimes worrying about when they, they wander away from worshiping you, from loving you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. To, to care about that, not in the sense of being judgmental, but in the sense that this is the most important thing, to know, love, trust, worship Jesus. This is eternity. And because I care, Father, help us, all of us here, initiate that conversation. It's hard to do. Father, I, I, I trust that even as I've preached, there's been someone on each of our minds that we're worried about, we're concerned about, we're concerned about their worship. Help us have a gentle conversation with them. Help us do so with understanding and love and in a way that gets to their heart, asking questions and just listening. And Father, as worshipers, we know we're going to sin, we're going to wander, and there's going to come a time in being a real part of God's family that someone's going to come to us and have a conversation that may be hard, that may feel like an attack. God, help us be people who keep a clean conscience before you, who ask for forgiveness, who go to the cross every day. So when someone does come to us, we have a clean conscience. Father, we ask your blessing over this God's family, our little family here at Sunrise. Keep us loving one another in unity. Keep us caring for one another. And when necessary, send out little dispatches so we might stay worshiping you, the true God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.